Hey, welcome to Cross Training. We look at faith and practice through biblical lens. The same people are on this episode that were on last Fortnite's episode, and we're kind of just keeping the ball rolling right now, so forgive me for the absolute absence of any, like, um, getting you into it. We're, we're just continuing the conversation. We've, so we've literally still... been talking about this for two weeks. It's been so yeah. long. I miss my family. <laughs> we've held John hostage for two weeks. Up in the corner. <laughs> my child has grown so much. <laughs> no, but we continue this discussion on philosophy and its place in a yeah. Christian worldview and in a Christian's life and how we should tackle it. Is it bad? Is it good? Is it somewhere in between? And that, that's the subject we're getting on. We just mm. got finished talking about a relative truth, objective truth, that sort of thing. So it can sort of lead into this uh, idea. Uh, John, you were saying technically two weeks ago but in reality <laughs> two minutes ago right, right, right. Um, about this idea of relative truth being a dangerous concept and i absolutely agree with that but i kind of want to take that down a different road that'll lead us into our further discussion topics uh, with this idea that truth is relative i don't think that people are inherently wrong when they're saying that yeah there's my controversial take for for this episode sure. because as they understand what truth is they are speaking truth they are speaking "Quote unquote," their truth, right? By their definition, yeah. Which sure. you, which you boil down to, like really being opinion, which that is correct. Right. But that's that's not the way that they're seeing. Right. It. By their definition, I, I can accept that. But by, by my or what I appeal exactly. to is the objective definition, of course. Exactly. Not. So that right. brings me to the point of like why God is necessary, why mm. God has to be real, because this brings us back to the this scary, difficult concept that that I myself have struggled with in the past. This idea that these certain moral standards these certain truths that I hold could just flat out be wrong because I am made of flesh and blood. Mm. There are areas in which God is intrinsically correct, but I disagree with him because as a fallen human being born of Adam, Mm. I'm just wrong in some areas. Simple as that. That's why scripture is necessary. Yeah. That is why constant meditation and study is necessary because you got to beat back that flesh. Paul you Paul bet. says it himself uh, when the scripture saying, I am constantly doing the things that I do not want to oh, do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Then there's a question I posted. I'm, I didn't mean to interrupt. You, you oh, continue on, but there's a question I posted on the on the, the, the Facebook podcast. It's like, if you were God, what would be one thing that you would change that you would do differently? Yeah, I would get rid of uh, what's it called? pimento cheese. Oh my what? gosh. Yeah. Why? No. Axe that stuff straight off the planet. I'm telling you, I would burn it eternally. Uh, Dude, that yeah. stuff is disgusting. It is. It's t- it's bad no matter how you cut it. Anyways, yeah. that was very diverse. You could get rid of cancer. You could kill all mosquitoes, but you want no <laughs> cheese. All right, fine, guys. Fine. I would make a terrible No, God. that's his yeah. truth, That's guys. why I'm that's down here. Truth. That's my truth. Let me live it. <laughs> no, but I, I say all that to kind of go down the road of this idea that our sense of justice, our sense of truth, our sense of morality is inherently flawed, and therefore there are going to be areas in which mm. we disagree with God. Oh, yeah. Do we need to believe in God to be a good person? I think by society standards of a good person, no. You can be a you can be a morally acceptable acceptable to society person, right? You can be not repulsive without God. I like okay, that, that phrasing. That's good. Repulsive. Yeah. <laughs> you can be not repulsive. You can be not a rapist. You can be not a murderer. You can be not a thief. You can be not an adulterer, uh, so on and so forth, right? You can be not a slanderer without God. Now. All that that gets you to is moralism, right? Yep. Just therapeutic moralism. It's not even moral therapeutic deism, which is another thing, but uh, because there's no deist in there, there's no God. You can you can literally be palatable as a human without God, but by God's standards of good, which is Himself, absolutely not. The only way is by Christ and by His imputed righteousness. 
So we could also, with the same train of thought, with that question, you could also ask the same line of questioning. as like, okay, can a Christian be a bad person? And so with that, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, you know, we, if, we are, if we are flawed in that sense that we can do good and wrong, that there is a sense of right and wrong, but yet we are, you know, contorted flesh and that we are, you know, sinful, naturally depraved, that how many times have you seen throughout church history that we've screwed things up? We've basically mass murdered people because of a different faith or we've burned people at the stake because of, quote, unquote, differences of yeah. theological opinion. So the church, Christians, are not exempt from this moral good, this yeah. moral awesomeness uh, of, of complete righteous, holy living. We strive for that, but guess what? Just like you said with what Paul said, is that the things that I want to do, I end up not doing. I yeah. screw up. Yeah. I screw up. But yet there, there's, a, there's a point of reference for Christians. Right. We know why. We know why. We have that, that, that viewpoint and like, okay, I know why I did wrong. How can I do better? And so I think this is where I think where Christian worldview does have diff- – and, and, I, and I say this. I say this objectively, but yet this is my subjective truth as well, is that the, the Christian worldview is superior and is the only truth out there comparative to any other secular worldviews is because they have a point of reference and they have the, the line of sight of Jesus on the cross, and they see God as the objective truth. And so that's one thing I think that is, uh, and we're taking this, the, the second episode, whatever, we're continuing it, of like, okay, Christians. Yeah, bring it in the tent, man. Yeah, let's bring it in. So the thing is, though, is that, and I love what Paul does. You When, when you were reading that last episode, you talked about how he focused he focused his viewpoint his, his his vantage point on the cross and the resurrection yeah and I think as us as Christians why there's so much divisiveness is because we're not looking at the cross anymore yeah that our view is upon the 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 tertiary stuff the secondary things instead of the primary goal of yeah. what a Christian's worldview is like of right and wrong of the cross of the blood and once we have Jesus once we see Jesus biblical Jesus not my personal own whatever I want him to be Jesus, carpet Jesus, bless you, child. Uh, <laughs> once we see Jesus of who he is and who he really is, then I think that these other secondary opinions or relative truth will come full circle to the reality of God. So I want to take a risk by asking and opening a question that I'm hoping I get a certain answer to to piggyback off of. Oh, so He's fishing. Yeah, I know. All right. <laughs> we as humans... What is our purpose on earth? Okay, let's let's answer that. Let's let's see what that question is on an atheistic uh, worldview, the atheistic oh, point of view. I was going to go straight into the Westminster Catechism, but that's fine. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, very You're seriously. Gonna, okay, to, well, okay, well, okay. Well, let's 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 retract. Let's go ahead. Go ahead I mean, I, I was just coming at that because we're again trying to bring it in the tent or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. There that's the that's the human's yes. purpose in life. Copy right? paste. Uh, Atheistically, uh, I have another thought, but I want to hear yours first to make sure that I'm going to answer the second half of your question correctly. So For the right. record, that's the answer I wanted. So oh, okay, we'll, cool. We'll yeah, get back to right. that in a moment. See, I don't have, <laughs> which I mean, this is coming straight from the butt. You know, this is where I'm just you know shooting from the hip sure. on, on on this. But like the way that I, because I'm not, I never was an atheist. I don't know the atheist worldview. But here's what the conversation that I kind of wanted to lead to with that with that question or that answer or whatever is that you cannot have a secular worldview such as atheistic worldview or whatever and not make it your own. You are piggybacking and cherry-picking from a Christian worldview. 
Yeah. Okay. So I don't know. I mean, I mean, if there's an atheist out there listening, please send me an email. I mean, we didn't, we didn't, or, you know, just do what in you can. It's in the show notes. Listen to that. I would like to say some of the things they piggyback off is like, an, like almost like a very, I don't want to say altruistic, but yet they have a sense of, I need to give to help people because it, it benefits me. Kind of like a, uh, a capitalistic way of thinking, a capitalistic mm. versus consumeristic thinking of like, okay, I need to do this, this, and this. Leave a legacy. Leave a legacy, in my in yeah. my opinion, but then also helping people realize that I am a legend. So I mean, yeah, I mean that's how that's the only other way to absolve guilt, absolve perceived guilt that you have about your own life is by attempting to quote do good unto others, so that by some reason you, you can leave your life knowing that you quote balanced it out, right? Again, if you're if you're just like you said, if you're doing this without a standard, if you're if you're doing this without a god, or without a framework, or without uh, specifically Christianity, I think other religions also fall very, very, very short, pitifully short. Um, what you're doing is you're you're actually just therapeutically get cleansing yourself by your own measures, by what you find valuable, by what you find good, not things that are intrinsically good necessary, but you perceive bad, you feel guilty. You want something better than that. You want to try and balance it out so that you can leave this earth greater than 50% somehow, even though it doesn't mean anything anyways. That's why I, I really think that all atheists, if they're honest with themselves, they have to be nihilists. There's no hope in that, right? Yeah. It, it, all, all dust is flesh, or, or all flesh is dust at that point, right? I mean, at, at that point, of course, it's your nihilism. You, the only way to, to leave this earth or to, to be on this earth with any amount of hope is this thought that you are handing something down in some way to somebody that's going to affect them positively. But why do any of it at all if there's not a God, if there's not an eternity, if there's not uh, specifically Christianity? I'm sure we're going to get into some finer points about yeah. here in a few minutes. But. You've been offering some very good context clues, but just for good measure, what is nihilism? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So nihilism would be, uh, well, nothing matters. Uh, everything's finite. Um, why exist on this earth? Uh, definite uh, depression <laughs> undertones in that. Um, you know, we're a bag of bones and chemicals. And right, exactly. Like we're all just organic. So, what's the purpose in loving yeah. anything? What's the purpose in doing anything good and affirming anything positive? Because we're all just going to dirt anyways. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's nihilist. Uh, it, it's an actually a very old school of thought. Um, it's one that hasn't survived very popularly for good reason. Um, I'm sure that the suicidality was a little higher. Than <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, again, like it's it's the opposite of Christianity. It's the opposite of hope. Uh, and even secularists, non-Christians, non-theists, whoever, all affirm the feeling of hope. They all strive for it. Let's give it a source. Yeah. The question is, is like, where does that hope come from? And exactly. What can we have hope in? Exactly. Let's give it a source. And like the the thing you were talking about, like the golden rule, that type of standard. Like people say, like, well, well, why is Christianity true? Because these other religions have a type of golden rule of doing to others as you have done to them. Mm -hmm. There's other religions that have that type of st same statement in their beliefs. Yeah. Well, that kind of goes to the point. It's like, well, if you're looking at it at a secular view, almost, it's like, well, then my truth is my truth. I don't have to believe in Christianity. Yeah. But the thing is, though, where are they getting that from? Right. Yeah. So going back to the the purpose of we as uh, humanity, we as Adam, uh, on earth <laughs> is to give glory to God. Uh, that going back into kind of the question of do I need to believe in God to be a good person? This this is something that I struggled with at one point. Uh, and when I say struggle with, I mean mm -hmm. just like, why yeah. do I believe this? It yeah. wasn't like, oh, yeah, my yeah, Christianity yeah. is yeah, jeopardy. Yeah, it puts you in a crisis mode. Yeah, right. yeah. Just want to make sure I'm framing this correctly. Uh, this idea of glorifying God. Because growing up, I was given this impression that, like, glorifying God was, like, singing to him. Glorifying God was 
pranked him was yeah, ring put the your hands up at the be- at the end of a football game. Yeah, precisely. Oh, it's all him. Yeah, and yeah. don't get me wrong; those things are glorifying God, but they seem like such pointed gestures. Mm-hmm. Like it's something you got to go. Like out the of your Pharisees way to do. being loud in the temple, almost. Yeah. Right. Like, like it's work. It's something that I don't necessarily want to do at all times. Mm. So does that mean that I'm a bad Christian that I'm not actively wanting to glorify God at all times? Well, I think it's important to go back to Eden. Look at what's happening before the fall of mankind. Like, how is God being glorified by Adam doing the work of naming animals? How is God being glorified by Mm. uh, he and Eve uh, taking fruit from trees that aren't of the knowledge of good and bad and eating them? How is that glorifying God? Because if they're perfect beings, I'm going to go ahead and imagine that everything they were doing by extension was glorifying God. Right. And that comes back to just observing like God's creation and what he put us on earth to do, to have dominion over it, to be good stewards of his earth. Glorifying God is a very, very wide net. The mm-hmm. only requirement within reason is acknowledge God as you do it. Mm-hmm. You can glorify God doing darn near anything as long as you acknowledge that the only reason you're able to do it is because God's yes, giving you breath exactly. to breathe. So if I take a dump and I give God glory, does that... Considered worship. God, God gave you the organs that are capable of sustaining you and allowing you to eject waste. Yeah. Dude, I'm, wow. that's going to be a sermon that's in itself right there. Degree. I got nothing you know? for that. Expel the depravity from my life. I mean, imagine, wow. imagine what would happen. Like, you know what? I challenge the three people in this room and everyone listening try and take a day and attribute every single thing you do yep. to the privilege of life that God has given you. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I think being grateful in everything is, is extremely important. I mean, my, I was talking with, uh, with my pastor about something recently, and uh, I was like, you know, I, I was describing an era of my life where, again, you know, during this point of my individual spiritual reformation, but I, I got to this point where I was like, you know what, I, I was just so grateful for everything I had in life, and I still am, and I, I hope to emulate that point of life that I was at where I was, you know, on a, on a bit of a uh, kind of stuck on this train of thought, but I was like, listen, you know, I, I go home to walls and a ceiling. I'm, I'm protected from every time it rains and I hear the rain on my roof and I don't feel it on my head. I don't see it in my child's bed. I'm thankful. Every, every time that I, I get in my car and well, right now I don't have air conditioning, but I can roll the windows down, right? <laughs> I'm thankful. Every time that I clock in and clock out of my job, and not only do I have the physical ability to do it, but God's blessed me with provision because mm-hmm. of it. I'm thankful. Every time I look back over the course of my life, and I, I, here's the the real mind bender. If you wanna if you wanna go with me here, and this gets into God's sovereignty, but we're not gonna talk about that. This is for the example. Or will we? I could, <laughs> I could have just as easily been born to the womb of a Somalian woman, and been raised in a Muslim country, or been sold into sex slavery if I was a Christian, or. You know, the, the possibilities are endless, right? I, I could be one of the children stuck in an Afghanistani airport mm-hmm. su- surrounded by the Taliban on one side and the United States on the other just waiting to get caught in the crossfire. I, I, there, there's so many different possibilities for the way that my life could have ended up. And for reasons I will never understand, I can't even contemplate. I can't even reason. I'm here. I'm grateful for everything. And God gets glory to all of it because all of it necessarily comes from him. I didn't do anything to earn living in America, right? And... There's nothing morally right about me living in America. There's no utility in that. Other than that, God was so gracious that I happen to have been born under these circumstances, raised by my parents, um, you know, uh, around family friends that I had had, um, given the education that I've been given. All of these were gifts. All of these were bestowed. All of these were I was subjected to. I didn't pursue hardly any of it. I didn't earn hardly any of it. Of course, it's all from the Lord. And a lot of this comes uh, stems down to like a lot of the Christian 
uh, doctrinal beliefs, one of the, the core things that we need to realize, and I think we forget, <clears throat> and I think, Matthew, you alluded to this the previous episode, which was about 10 minutes ago, um, that if we are made in the image of God mm. and we view every single human being, the people in Afghanistan, the, the individual that's born in sex slavery, or let's just say Hitler and... Biden and Trump and all these people of different opinions. Those three people are exactly the same. I, yeah. <laughs> I think you're rolling the dice on your viewership here by okay. putting those three in the same sentence. Anyways, but <laughs> if we view every single individual as the image of God, someone that's made in the image of God, yeah. and we view them in that manner, then that should change our perspective of our worldview philosophy action. The action that. that we take philosophy, we take theology, and place it to the test that we see it there and we apply it to our lives unequivocally yes so yeah. with the with with that kind of being said is like and I kind of want to get into we, some of these questions that Christians deal with and that we might have differing opinions but guess what let's look to the cross once we start throwing oh, uh, chairs at each other you know let's do it so but like with with that conversation I, I'm curious because there has been different people with different opinions within the church mm-hmm. that have a different view of how God functions. Right. A certain thing. Born of a Somalian woman, born in Afghanistan. Is that just by chance that someone is born, or is God sovereignly placing a child at a certain place at a certain time every time? So the question is, how can humans have free will, but God still be sovereign in these situations? Is it like, is that Somalian child destined, determined to be murdered? Mm-hmm. Or is the Afghanistan children determined to been made in a certain way to be killed mm-hmm. or is there like just well free chance because this tackles the conversation within the christian camp of like okay well the epicurean uh, uh paradox is yeah. like if god is all powerful and all sovereign which I, I, I think i posted this we'll post it on the thing I've, we've talked about it before in the past if god is all powerful and all knowing and he knows that evil exists why does he not do anything about it so if why does he not stop these things? And the problem of evil, the conversation of this, so let's just root it down back just a little bit simply. Is it like, does free will exist or does God just sovereignly place everything everywhere at all times? Everything is determined. Uh, I know it's kind of low-grade Christianese, but just to err on the side of caution, could you give a specific definition of sovereignty? Sovereignty, yes. So sovereignty is basically saying that God is in control. God has everything in his hands. Uh, you know, uh, I think my parents sing a song, nothing can touch me unless it passes through his hands. That he is completely in control of every situation. And then if that's a theological stamp in our belief system, which it is, then it begs the question of why is these things happening in the world around us and how do we function as images of God in that reality? Yeah. So that that's and, and determinism is another term that is kind of a Christianese determin determinism is basically everything's determined that there's no free will they're basically autonomous robots. Uh, so there there's a question. Do I need to ask a question again? Or is... Yeah. Um, so I think that uh, first it, it's really easy to say right. Oh well, uh, God's ways are higher than ours, and we don't really know how He functions, right? Because there's scripture to that effect. Yeah. 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 I, I've always kind of found that to be like a cop-out, right, for people who, uh, oh, my goodness, I'm going to say something dangerous here. But I'm Yes, we love dangerous <laughs> thoughts. Dangerous thoughts, we love it. No, I found that to be in some scenarios, right, I'm going to give a ton of qualifying statements because I'm such a, like a left-brainer, but, I mean, it, here's, here's the thing. The temptation is for that to be a big cop-out for someone who's not willing to think well, mm. all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. well, his ways are higher than ours, so who knows, let's look. 
leave it to chance. I guess I'll never find out. The same, the same uh, uh, train of thought of like, well, just just believe it, Blind, blindly believe it, blind faith. It's right. like, well, I need evidence here. Right. So, um, Kate Thomas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, we give Thomas too much crap. But the thing is, though, like, I think that it's encouraging to be a Thomas. That some of these questions, like, okay, I need logic and reasoning of why I need to actually respond in this manner. The right. fact that that's recorded in Scripture is a sign that God was out there going, like, good stuff, good stuff, Thomas. We're writing that down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when it comes to the question of God's sovereignty, right, his rule over all things uh, versus our free will, um, you know, you pose the question a certain way, um, you know, is God sovereign or do we have free will? Uh, I think it's a false dichotomy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so philosophically what that means is basically um, that's not really an argument right? There's not really one or the other. Um, and it's a, it's a leading question that I like because a lot of people view it that way. Mm -hmm. So I love the way that you worded that question. It was very important. Um, but yeah, it's a false dichotomy. God can be sovereign over all things and we still must retain our free will. It's not just that, and we happen to retain our free will. We have to, or else this whole thing's a sham. All right. And that's the, that's the important thing to note here. If we don't have free will, the ability to make choice, then sin is not sin. Holiness is not holiness. All these things are just the end result of a really weird algorithm that we're all subjected to. We live in the matrix anyway, so I mean, right? Exactly. So, no, no, but you very seriously Wait, get that into is that. a legitimate belief system that we are living in a simulation. So let right, yeah, Before you throw the baby out with the bathwater, that is a thing. <laughs> no, yeah. Um, so it's a false dichotomy. So uh, I have to consult what Scripture has to say about this. I have to believe, like you said, not one thing comes to a man without first being sifted through the sovereign hand of God. In your now, oh, go sorry. So, no. Uh, now, that being said, not one thing comes to a man without first being sifted through the sovereign hand of God. Once it is sifted through the sovereign hand of God and falls to planet Earth, if you want to stick with this visual metaphor here, whatever happens to it is a misunderstood mix of free will and God's sovereignty. I absolutely believe that it was God's sovereignty that I am where I am in my station in life, for better, for worse, for the ailments that I suffer, for the good things that I enjoy, uh, for the situations that I endure. Um, I absolutely believe that all of them were directly, uh, were, were directly given um, or produced or introduced by God's sovereign will. Uh, I have to split up those terms a little bit because we do have free will here, okay? Um, to use the terrible analogy here, um, let's go with the progressive Christians and say, hey, God gives me a million-dollar check because I love him, okay? So let's say that God does that, all right, for whatever reason. Uh, I think it's a terrible idea to give me a million-dollar check, but here we go, all right? Um, what I do with that is still my responsibility. What I do with that is still my choice. Now, there's different big $12 word, uh, you know, trains of thought that you can use to kind of reconcile God's will with uh, man's free will or God's sovereignty with man's uh, ability. Um, you know, you have Calvinism, you have determinism, mm -hmm. you have mm -hmm. Molinism, mm -hmm. um, you have Arminianism. Um, that's what these different theological trains of thought are. I don't know that we go off into the deep end and all that, but I'll find it sufficient to say that I think the preponderance of evidence is found in Scripture that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. Not one thing comes to a man without first being sifted through the sovereign hand of God. Every bad thing that came to David was directed or given or allowed by God because of the fall, the consequence of the fallen nature that we all have to endure. Yep, yep, yep. Um, the same thing happened with Job. The same thing happened with Paul. And the, here's the, the thing. We're not promised deliver. And this is an old message that I'm sure a lot of our listeners are listeners elect, uh, to, to coin your term, have, have heard. I mean, this isn't new, right? Um, 
God directs our endurance to suffering, often without relieving us of our suffering. For reasons that I'll never understand and that only he will, for reasons that sanctify me, for reasons that make me a brighter and louder witness to his glory, um, for ways that encourage my scriptural growth so that I raise better children as disciples and weapons of his, arrows against the enemy as scripture calls them, um, there are definitely strong reasons to believe that God's absolutely sovereign, yet I retain my free will. Mm-hmm. What was it? One of the episodes, I think it was like the uh, bad, what was it? It was It was basically where people misunderstand or misquote scripture and it ends up being kind of dangerous. What was that one? But it's like uh, the, the bad statement that Christians make sometimes like, well, God won't give you more than you can handle. Oh yeah, the, the Christian catchphrase. Yeah, the Christian catchphrase. It's like, well, that's not true at all. They look at a certain text and they take it out of context and they actually miss miss speak it yeah. that God won't give you more than you can handle. It's like, well, that's yeah. just a false. I mean, that delegitimizes martyrdom. It does. So yeah. God, and we talk about, I'm not going to, uh, not going to steamroll that because you can listen to our past uh, conversations. Uh, is that basically that's not true because God will give you more than you can handle. Absolutely. He so has he, he has, has to. to, you see it all the time so that you can rely on his sovereignty. Absolutely. On his actual ability to have faith in the thing that he actually has under control. Exactly. And that is, is the, 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 the purpose of humanity is to recognize that God and worship him through whatever is thrown at us. Exactly. So Yeah, we, we end up with this, uh, with this idea that, and it's not totally wrong, right, to pray for relief from sickness. All right, well, my so-and-so is ill. They need prayer. I absolutely agree. I pray for them fervently. The, the issue is we're praying for some of the wrong things or we're expecting some of the wrong things when we do ask for prayer. Where in Scripture do we get any promise that we will have relief from sickness because we pray? First opinions. First opinions, probably, yeah. right? Jesus healed, okay, undoubtedly. He healed the lame, uh, healed the woman with the blood condition, he healed the blind, he raised the dead. But why did he do all these things? Let's consult the experts. John, chapter 20. Ooh. We're pretty big fans of John here on Cross Training. Yeah. If you go back to our first season, we definitely went through a, a deep dive of John. So I was looking back at our episode list, like three-fourths of season one was John. <laughs> yeah. That was a good time, though. I mean, oh, I, yeah. I love John. I mean, I enjoyed it. I mean, yeah. it taught me a lot. Yeah. So let's see what the Bible says about miracles, specifically, since we're on this little tangent here. But it does have to do with God's sovereignty, man's suffering, man's free will. John 20, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs. This is after the resurrection, Okay. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The purpose for the miracles being written, in other words, the purpose for them being performed, the only reason they're written is so that we can know that they happen. They were performed so that the people around them can know Mm -hmm. that they happen. They weren't performed because Jesus was just altruistic and wanted to help. He did, but greater than that, far greater than that, far greater than we can ever imagine. The purpose for the miracles being written was so that way we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, so that we may believe that he is the Son of God, so that we may believe and have life in his name. That was the entire purpose for miracles. So, and that's part of why I'm a cessationist, but here we go. The, The miracles are so that we can have belief. They're evangelistic in nature. And so when we look at current believers experiencing situational relief from their stress, that's why I think we don't find it. We already believe in them. That's the purpose for just miraculous relief from stress, from life stress, whatever it is, whether that's mental or emotional stress, whether that's sickness, financial Mm -hmm. issues, familial issues, whatever. 
That's why we don't find relief from those things, but we find strength to persevere through them because mm-hmm. that's the refining thing. That's the sanctifying thing. That is now the evangelistic thing. Mm-hmm. It'd be a far less of an evangelistic tool, I really believe, for God to just relieve us from all of our suffering so that we can go brag about it because if it doesn't happen for others, then two, two things are, are possible here. Um, I'm referencing a conversation I had with a friend earlier this week, but, um, um, but he was asking me about healing. Um, I said, firstly, it is nowhere in Scripture as a promise to us that we will get relief from suffering, for, for suffering's mm-hmm. sake. Therefore, it's at best conjecture that we get relief from suffering, for suffering's sake. And at worst, it's false teaching. So point two, he either leads to the pitfall that when this Christian does become sick, either he didn't have enough faith and therefore must not be saved, or that God was not able to heal, and therefore he isn't God. Both of these are wrong, obviously. I mean, Christians get sick, they die early from tragedy and from illness, and God is still God. We're still saved. But the miracles that still happen, they happen to the extent that depraved sinners are turned by God's grace to salvation. That's the miracle, okay? The miracle is that we have the compressed thought between two leather binds, of God's thoughts on how we should relate to him. That's a miracle. It's, it's, the, greatest, it's mm-hmm. the greatest miracle possible that we're one with Christ. What else do we need? I mean, sure, it'd be great if God relieved me from my illness or from my financial uh, situation or from my, you know, wh- whatever my hypothetical is, right? It'd be great if God relieved me from those things. It would be even greater if our purpose on life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It would be even greater if God made me stronger, if God made me more faithful, if God made me more useful, if God made me more humble, if God made me more Christ-like through those sufferings. And that's exactly what Paul experiences when the Lord does not remove remove the thorn from his flesh. Mm. And also another point of view uh, that agrees with your logic, because, I mean, I believe it's correct. Uh, If God sent us the million-dollar check, if God, whenever you had the, the common call, went, hey, God, can you, like, get rid of this for me? He's like, sure thing, man, I got you. That cheapens the relationship. How on earth are we going to go around touting that we serve a relational God that wants to know us on a personal level, desires a real relationship with us, so much so that we ascribe to the concept of free will because if God was forcing people into salvation, that would cheapen the relationship. Why would we then go and say, well, if you're a Christian, you don't have to deal with as much hardship, or he'll give you these special powers to, to, to get you through everything a little better than right. everyone else? Because then that yeah. becomes a transactional relationship that yeah. is not what I believe in personally. Right. There's only one transaction, and that's the transaction of the blood. Yeah, and faith. And Absolutely. that was good Confe- Confession yeah. and belief. Amen. Sufficient, one might yeah. say. Yeah, yeah, so, all sufficient. Yeah. And, you know, not, not only is that true, it's, it, makes it, it cheapens this and makes it transactional, but also it makes it very experientially driven. If I don't experience relief from sufferings, then that, that, like I just said, it has to lead to one of two thoughts. Either I'm not a Christian, so this doesn't apply to me, this benefit, and so now I'm in this existential crisis. Or the God that I believe in isn't really a God. And, He's and not really dangerous. powerful to say. It, it leads to, to both our, our damned false beliefs. I use that term uh, intentionally. I mean, they, they, they have to strip you of all of your belief. So let's just not believe that because, A, of all, it's not in Scripture, and, B, it's logically infeasible. Um, another Scripture that I like to reference in uh, reference to this is uh, Mark chapter 2, verses uh, 10 and 11. Jesus had just healed the paralytic, and he says, um, and while well, I'll back up to verse 9, it contextualizes it better. Uh, he's talking to the Pharisees after he healed this man. He says, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed, and walk? Verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, go home. He rose immediately and left. Um, you know, the, the chapter goes on, and it talks about how everyone was amazed at this. They are amazed at his miracle. But what reason did Jesus give? 
Let's consult the expert. Let's get Jesus's opinion on why Jesus does miracles. Jesus said the reason for this. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority mm-hmm. on earth to forgive sin. How do we know, you and I, all right, the three of us, how do we know that Jesus has authority to forgive sin? Because of Scripture. Mm-hmm. All right. It goes on again in uh, you know, Paul's letters to Timothy. He says, uh, you know, these instructions are given to you, these scriptures are given to you that you may, you may be complete, ready for every good work. Yep. Scripture makes you complete. Yep. Not your experience with God, not your anointing, not your experiential worship service where you receive some special powers from the Lord. Like All of these things are extra biblical. I believe a lot of them are heretical to use that buzzword. Ding, 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 well, ding, look ding. at Bill Johnson. I mean, if he exactly if, if he's a dude, which I mean, he's a a, a big uh, continuationist that basically focuses, you know, miracles are continuously going on. If he's healing people, then why is he not in the hospitals? And why does he wear glasses still? I mean, if it's exactly. God's will for you to be healed, why the heck does he still have glasses? I mean, is that part yeah. of his did God sovereignty? Not correct his, did he yeah. not have enough faith to correct his own? Yeah, religion? exactly. So th- this is the, the the point is this that that train of thought is logically infeasible because it leads to one of two options that I've you know repeated several times here. So I'll save us the time. But but that's the problem I have with it. Not just that it's not found in Scripture because it's not. Um, miracles are found in Scripture, but why are they found in Scripture? You have to read the verses around them to see why they even happened. Right? That's what philosophy Context is. Context is key. Why? Well, and that's what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about philosophy and framework and systematic uh, train of thought. The, the system, the reason, the why for all these miracles, Jesus says repeatedly, it's so that you may know that he has the power to forgive sins. It's so that you may believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, and in that belief have life mm-hmm. in his name. That's the reason for the miracles. What was it uh, like? I think N.T. Wright, he, he's been going on, and he's wrote a, a few books about this, and most recently uh, he's talked about this. But if you look at John, there's seven major miracles in the book of John. Uh, eight if you want to counteract the heretics of uh, Mason and Matthew. But. Hey, shut up. <laughs> but there's seven miracles, major miracles in John, and N.T. Wright calls them seven signposts. And he views it like in this way, and I think it's accurate, that, that these miracles were instructively placed to lead us to the truth of God, of course, that the miracle isn't the uh, isn't the big thing, and I think a miracle is the ex- experience almost. But yet, the real thing, the real thing to be grasped, the real miracle is the how do we respond to God by with faith and grace, and that it's it's responding that way. That's the real miracle, yep. the resurrection of Christ, and our response to that. Absolutely. So it's it's not, and I, and I say, and I, and sometimes you may think I'm heretic with this, is that like I don't really like saying they're miracles. Because, and even some things in today, like, I don't think, and you can shoot me, guys. You can shoot me if you want to. I don't think a baby being born is technically a miracle. That's something that is a natural process being done that is natural. Now, a baby that's dead and then come back to life, yeah, it's a miracle. But yet that should lead us to a greater question of, like, okay, why did this happen? Right. Something that doesn't make any sense of our reality, of our perceived truth, where does this bring us to? And that's what happened in John, is that these things that were breaking the mold of our evidential reality, okay, what do we do with this? And it led people to the truth of Christ. Right. Christ didn't do these miracles to say, okay, well, look, look at the, the, the one in Mark that you said. Like, yeah. what happened first? Exactly. Was a forgiveness of sins. Mm-hmm. That was the big thing. That was the miracle that was focused. Yeah, exactly. That was the first thing. Before the miracle that Jesus uttered, he says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. There's quotes around that phrase, your sins are forgiven. Jesus actually says that to the paralytic in that moment. He says, your sins are forgiven. 
within this hyperbole that he's using with the Pharisees. Which is easier to say, to say to the paralytic, and then footnote, aside, hey, dude, your sins are forgiven. And then he comes back to the mm -hmm. Pharisees. Or to tell him, aside, footnote, here, dude, get up and walk. Like, both of these things are said, but which is said first, you're absolutely right, the forgiveness of sins. And then what does Jesus follow it up with? So that you may know that I have the power to forgive sin. So talking about the concept of of miracles, cessationism or continuationism notwithstanding, uh, we see these, and even even non-believers will look at miracles and be like, man, that there's something going on here. There's a higher power at work. Like that, right. that's something that uh, is marketable. One might say. So let's kind of take that in the other direction. That make make 180 run the other direction. <clears throat> All the evil stuff that happens in the world, mm. that's a challenge. That's yeah. usually one of the first uh, bits of resistance you get when you are trying to market the goodness of God to uh, an <laughs> the Old Testament. Yeah, what about like, the slaughter of Canaanites? Yeah, what, in about, the Old Testament? what about cancer? What about all yeah. uh, the wars that are going on in the world? So that brings uh, another f philosophical question uh, to surface: Doesn't the existence of evil disprove the existence of God? I've got, I mean, uh, okay. So this goes back to the principal conversation that we had before of the moral argument. Exactly. So the moral argument is like there is a differentiation. You said it. Nailed it. Okay. Make sure. Uh, Your emphasis is weird, yeah. but the word was Sorry. correct. Sorry. It is correct. The issue is, is that we know the difference between evil and good. How do we know what evil is? And so if you go back to the nihilist conversation, it's like, well, there is no evil. There is no good. Everything, it just happens, just happens that there's no feelings, that I'm completely in a state of emotional depressed. And like even the extreme nihilist would say, well, then we just need to all die. Our death is meaningless. Our life is meaningless. And so when we perceive that there's evil in the world, how do we know that that's evil? And we talk about Let's, let's talk about different types of evil, and, and we did this in like the first episode of first couple episodes of season one. Is that there's natural evil and then there's human evil, mm -hmm. and so we think about like a couple years ago uh, the tornado that happened in Kuville, uh, where we're kind of located at. A lot of the questions arise is like, why did God allow that to happen? That's natural evil. That's natural consequences of sin that has de depraved our natural right. uh, environment. That form of evil happens in this world because. That's the way it is. That sounds like such a line, and it sounds like such a passing the buck moment, but it really is. It was not directed by God, but God had to create an environment where evil was possible. And in order for evil to po be possible, it also has to be present. He, evil can't just be hypothetically possible, right? It has to also be present in order for there to be a choice yeah, between yeah, the yeah, two. Yeah. And so when we tie the conversation of evil and good, is that good can stand on its own, but evil has to stand with good. You can't have evil... Right. Without any kind of pre without a presence of goodness, right. you can have goodness without and, ha and still have uh, not a presence, a seat next to evil. But yet, evil never is next to a void spot. Right. It always has to have good. Yeah. And so the question arises: that why does this ha even happen? And I think this is something that we that, that it needs to be tackled. Yeah, we'll, we'll get the answer, yeah. but we can constrapulate yeah. the reason of God and the possibility of God and the truth of Scripture, and yeah. say, okay, this is. Why it happens? Yeah. To, to answer your question, you know, um, if there is evil, um, but, uh, can can you repeat your question? Because it was the way that you phrased it that caused me to answer it this way. Doesn't the existence of evil 
disprove the existence of God. Right. I'd say that the existence of evil necessitates the existence of God. I'd say that's exactly yes, the Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, in order, because uh, just like Tanner said, I'm not repeating anything you guys haven't just heard in the last, you know, four minutes. Um, Easy. I'm it's... not that big of a bad one. <laughs> no. The, the existence of evil necessitates the existence of God. Because, again, you know, to appeal to our last episode uh, two weeks ago, I've been in here so long. Um, <laughs> Free me. We have, yeah, we have a knowledge of this good and this evil. We have a knowledge of this discrepancy, of this division, and it comes from something that is both above us, in other words, more knowledgeable, more powerful, and behind us. Uh, it's, it's a predecessor to us. It happened before us. Because the moment that mankind started, if you're going to take this extra biblically, right, just take this secularly, the moment that mankind started writing, started writing about good and evil. The moment he did. He, he wrote about it through fables or through stories, but there's always tension there. There's always morality there. There's, there's always a difference between some good and some evil. Now, again, you know, I'm not going to beat a dead horse or repeat our last episode for time's sake, but of course there's a God if there's evil. Uh, it doesn't disprove him. In fact, it encourages our thoughts about him. How should Christians answer that question when it's brought up? Like, say, if you're actually having a conversation with an atheist mm-hmm. or an, a nihilist. You know, what if we have this conversation with somebody? How do we answer that and not, I'm not saying, see, the, these two episodes, they're very chock full of, of a lot of intense stuff. How do we bridge that conversation as a Christian, in a Christian worldview, in kind of an easy, palatable way? I think uh, one of my favorite examples is, again, I'm just a parrot, right? I'm just a moron. Uh, I just like this stuff. I'm you, not, yeah, you parrot smart people. Right, exactly. Uh, I repeat the good teachings of other good men. Um, so... C.S. Lewis gives an example in Mere Christianity um, when he's explaining the moral argument. He says, uh, let's imagine a hypothetical here, all right? I'm on a train, and uh, there's a woman that enters the train door, and she has to get all the way to the only open seat that's in the back, okay? So she's walking down the aisleway, and she happens to trip over my foot, and she spills her belongings. uh, She becomes injured from the fall. Um, I rush up immediately. I apologize. I try and help her. Um... That's situation one, the hypothetical situation two. I'm on the train. The woman enters the front of the cart. Uh, She has to get to the only seat open in the back. I knowingly, deliberately say, yep, I'm going to do it, and I trip her intentionally. What's the difference? Well, the difference is because you meant to hurt her. Right. So that there's a sense that I should not, right, that I should not do that. Well, yeah, of course not. That's wrong. Okay, wrong by what standard? Yada, yada, yada. You go down the moral train of thought. All right. We talked about that a lot first, but there's quick ways to get into that because everyone sees right and wrong. And frequently we talk about it without even knowing it. All these hot button issues that are hyper politicized right now about should we do this or should we do that? Anytime you hear the word should or ought, what you're doing is you're appealing to a standard that's above your current decision. Okay. My current decision is to go walk out in the street during busy traffic. I should not do that. Why? Well, because we all know that it's not safe, right? We all know there's a standard. There's a standard of knowledge there. Mm-hmm. The same thing applies to our morality. I wonder where humanity managed to acquire this knowledge of good and bad. Ah. So I wish there was some sort of documentation as to where this came from. Well, I think that we were created with it. We were created in the likeness of God. Well, now we're now okay. Listen, I think that went right over his head. No, 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 no. I, I, I know where you're going for because I know I know what you believe. But and, I, and you were being sarcastic. See, I don't read sarcasm well. I'm too left, left-brained. <laughs> I'm talking about the, <laughs> the the fruit of the tree of the knowledge. Exactly. So now we're getting the conversation. Exactly. Is this literal or metaphorical? But we're not. I, that's that's oh, a, that's shoot, a whole that, other conversation. That's a season. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a so, season. That's but the the 
reality of that, though, where is this? Okay, well, we're not going to get into this conversation at all, but yet I'm going to look at a little bit of the reasoning of why this was written, I think, is that the Garden, the garden of Eden was a way that is true goodness apart from evil. Yeah. Okay. It's absent of evil. It's void of anything that is evil, right. either by uh, natural evil or moral evil. So the presence of that, the presence of God, is righteously good. Mm-hmm. Once you intertwine a decision to do your own morality, to make your decision, I think the 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 sin was not uh, the fruit itself of the knowledge of good and bad. The sin itself was to distort the true nature of goodness of God for your own goodness. It was yeah. the decision. The yeah, decision to make. So yeah. we're not, I mean, for, for a Christian camp conversation, we're not even talking about if this was metaphorical or literal. We're talking about the implications of the decision to be your own God. Right, right, and right. that's what Adam and Eve were making. It yeah. was a decision to be their own God because God, truly righteous and truly good, apparently didn't know what he was doing. So I'm going to do my own thing. So I have a new question that kind of uh, piggybacks off of what we've been discussing. Doesn't the existence of evil disprove the existence of God? To understand what evil is, do you have to subconsciously accept God? So now I can see where Adam Holloway gets his answer of, like, there's no such thing as a, a true atheist. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a really cool book written on it. Um, I've got it if either of you guys want to borrow it, but um, it's called Stealing from God by Frank Turek. Um, and he's an apologist, uh, a Christian philosopher now. Um, but that's what he, that's that's what the entire book is about. Yep. It's about how atheists steal from these Christian lines. They steal from God. They appeal to a sense of morality. They appeal to a sense of doing good. They appeal to a sense of ought or should, right? Which, again, we talk this to uh, to, to its extent, but um, absolutely. I think other other people, other worldviews, whether they know it or not, um, they're borrowing from or stealing from uh, this universal morality that we all understand has to come from something transcendent, mm-hmm. something other than us. So, yeah, I, I think absolutely, to an extent, you have to, um, you don't know that you are, but yeah, of course you're believing in God because you're believing in a standard. You're believing in something transcendent, something that has to be other than us. You, you're just not, fo- the thing is, you're you're saying the introductory thing without following that all the way out to its logical end. So that's what is so good about philosophy and Christian philosophy is you're encouraging people to keep thinking what they're thinking about. That's all I'm doing. I was like, yeah. all right, awesome. Keep thinking about that and see if it's true. Like, not in a challenging rebuttal type way, but, you know, in a, in a gentle and encouraging way. Like, what, why is it that you think that? Like, let me probe a little bit. And you're just probing. You're just asking a ton of questions. And, of course, you're pointing them in direction of, like, I want to see what you ultimately believe. Like, if you've thought about what this ultimately means. You're not doing it to say, oh, haha, I'm right and you're wrong. Well, this isn't a scarlet letter, let's hang the witch moment either. It's a, you know, um, I just want you to understand what you're believing and that, it's, that it could be so much better. Like, you know, that, that, <laughs> that this, this is a flawed train of thought. It's incomplete and that the completion is found only in Christ. And, mm-hmm. and again, uh, to quote the scripture that I've already used, um, that by doing it, you may have life in his name. It's evangelistic every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's not too far off of what we were talking about last episode about this idea that there are going to be times that we disagree with God due to our uh, flawed morality coming from the flesh. Mm-hmm. So let's go ahead and play devil's advocate on that. Let, let's ask the question, uh, do, does God have that perfect justice? Is God omnipotent? Can God do something that is logically incoherent? Yes, comma, no. 
Ooh. All right. Elaborate. All right. Yes, he's omnipotent. No, he can't do something logically incoherent. Oh, crap. Okay. All right. I misunderstood that answer. I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. hold up. Yeah, sorry. It, it, was affirm- it was affirming okay, the question. Gotcha. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. 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 Yes, God is log- uh, Yes, God is absolutely omnipotent. He is all powerful. Popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, split your brain in half because uh, I'm going to answer it both ways. No. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. God's all powerful. Um, and no, he cannot do something that's logically incoherent. Uh, he can't create a dark brightness. Okay. Right? So, I think. To, for, to continue answering this question without just it mm-hmm. being one of those, like, well, obviously this, so let's just talk about the obvious answer. Sure. What do you define as being logical? Goodness. Because I think that that's almost a dangerous word to have in this question, kind of think of it, because logic is something we deal with. I think right. logic... Because well, uh, logically, you can't walk yeah. on water. I think Jesus did. Hmm. So it's not logical. I think logic is basically a valid conclusion based upon evidence that we see or evidence that should be yeah. quote unquote real cuz logically if you've been dead for 3 days you will continue to be dead well you know yeah, you stinketh so i mean that's logic but the thing is it doesn't make any logical sense of those seven signposts in john and so i think jesus was breaking the logic of his premodernism thought mm. to reach people to think about harder things of like okay well this doesn't reach or ding any of the logical things in my mind that he basically breaks the mold because guess what? He's all powerful. He can do whatever the heck he wants. So he's basically breaking the mold of evidence to bring to a conclusion to say, okay, where does this come from? It's leading to the truth of Christ. Yeah, sure. I think to, to redefine a few things, perhaps on my initial response, um, to, to include what you just said, there are some things that are unnatural that the Lord can absolutely do, that he has done. He's raised Lazarus from the dead. That was not natural. I don't think that it was illogical because it's not... uh, uh, From our standpoint, of course, being dead is mutually exclusive to being alive. But to the creator of life, he can do whatever he wants. To his logic, but our logic. There's a difference between God's logic and our logic. This goes back to our flawed sense of morality. Yes, yes. I was hoisted by my own petard. (laughs) (laughs) I love that comment. No, Uh, but for sure, I think that there are things that are logically incoherent that... God cannot do, right? God is perfectly honest. He's maximally honest, and therefore he cannot lie, all right? There are things that principally he cannot do because they are principally like, of course they're a logic because they're 100% mutually exclusive. Before Christ raised the first man from the dead, who knows? Like, that probably didn't think that that was possible either. I wouldn't have, but... I think that we chalk that up to something that is unnatural because God created life. He created man. He created every molecule in Lazarus's body, and the Lord has power over life and death. And so we don't see any other point in Scripture, especially— uh, and we have the privilege of experiencing this uh, a millennia or so after Scripture was written, right? Like, we have that privilege of, like, knowing that the book's closed and knowing what it's about— um, in the sense that, like, nothing's going to drastically change. We don't understand The Apocrypha, it. bro. The Apocrypha. No, 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 no. Listen, listen, listen. That's another season. So um, <laughs> we have the benefit of uh, not understanding that uh, everything that God says uh, is something that we're going to know, right? That's a benefit in that, like, man, this is super weird. This is super unnatural. I can dwell on it for a minute. It doesn't challenge my faith, right? We have the benefit of also knowing, like, which things God will and won't do based on what he's done in Scripture. Like, he won't lie. Uh, he he won't make a square triangle because he can't. Like, there, there are or things a rock are, so heavy he can't lift it. Right, exactly. Yeah. There's no rock so heavy that he can't lift it. Like, that's logically infeasible. So we've been talking for a while. 
so much that this is uh, spread across two different episodes. So, hmm. uh, I don't know about y'all, but my brain's starting to turn a mush. Let's start winding <laughs> this down a little bit. Yeah. And I say that because I'm going to be honest, I don't even know what this last question means. So, <laughs> because, like, if you he, he had me, to explain it to me, too. Yeah. He, he gave me a heads up, though. He was decent about it. Okay, yeah. Because if you were asking this question to me right now, I'd be sitting there thinking, can you use 75% of these words in a sentence before you say them in the sentence that the question is? <laughs> yeah. So, how about you pose this okay. question and then explain to me what it means? Okay. So here's what it boils down to with this whole, you know, meeting in the tent conversation of, of Christians. And the thing that I alluded to in the very beginning of this episode is that we can meet at the cross. And if we come to the conclusion that Christ is who he says he is, instead of a lunatic or a madman or a con man, as, as Lewis would pr- propose, that uh, he has to be one of the one of the three, is that who? what did Jesus do on the cross and how how does it affect philosophically of how we also interact with other people because he is our great example. He is someone that has come to serve and not be served upon. But yet this way that we've already come to the conclusion of God is all righteous and he deserves our praise and our worship. And with every action that we do within our life, that it should be praise worthy to him. And, but also as a Christian lifestyle, a Christian worldview is that we need to have an altruistic type of mentality is that we need to do things ex- ex- without expecting a return. Right. from them. So with the cross being at the center focus of our faith, which it should be, just to let you guys know, heads up, spoiler alert, is that if the cross is the center focus of our faith, that we see Christ in kind of two facets, but yet I would like to propose, I, would want, I, want, I want you all's opinion, but I, I, I have a view. Is the cross truly altruistic in the sense of like it was completely selfless of Christ to do? Or is it based upon rational self-interest by basically saying he was coming to do something to redeem our fallenness to get the praise that he deserves? Mm. And I have—I mean, I have, a, I have a view upon this, um, but I want to hear y'all's thoughts. Let me read some scripture real quick to kind of give you a basis of, of where that's coming from. So this is Mark chapter 8, verses 34 uh, through 38. It says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, and this is Jesus, Jesus speaking, by the way. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man gain the whole world and profit uh, his soul? For what he what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes to the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So you have two two avenues of thought in those verses of like that you need to deny yourself, yourself gain to see the cross. Mm. And then does it gain an attribute of glorifying God in that? by his duty upon the cross. So that begs the, 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 the statement that I'm saying is like, is the cross a completely selfless love action or is he doing it just to get the praise? Which I mean, this is kind of defeating the purpose of the question. Sure. Uh, but w- what do y'all think? Hmm. Did, did I rationalize that question appropriately? I think so. Okay. Um, I, I definitely have a response because you gave me a heads up in time to think of it. Yeah. Um, I'm scared to answer. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I feel like I've answered every question this way, but both and no. Um, but but seriously, uh, the question's a little bit leading. Um, yeah. And that's I know that that's on purpose. I think that in order for God to do something, 
uh, anything that he, and this appeals to the ontologic argument that I referenced in the last episode, uh, for God to do anything, for God to have any attribute, he has to be maximally great at it. That, that term is kind of yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. famous for the ontologic argument that it's a maximally great being. But if he's kind, he is maximally kind. He is kind to the maximally great degree. If he's just, he's just to the maximally great degree. So in your question, is the cross selfless or is it selfish? It is selfless to the maximally great degree. To the greatest degree possible, it was selfless because Christ laid down his life for his brothers. Christ laid down his life for his disciples. He laid down his life for the church. He did it so that you and I, who are totally depraved sinners, uh, we're getting to theology here, but like uh, that yeah, I affirm yeah, are yeah. totally depraved sinners, uh, could have imputed righteousness uh, that we didn't earn, that we didn't even ask for, frankly. Again, theology, but we'll get to that later. Um, that's absolutely selfish. It's max. It's selfish to the maximum. Selfless to the maximally great degree. Is it selfish? Well, selfish has a bad connotation to it. So I'll I'll adjust that a little bit to make it a little holier, maybe. Um, it's it's self-glorifying to a maximally great degree. The Trinity loves and wants to make itself great. That's what God wants to do. He wants to make His name great. That's what the Book of Revelation is about. That every tribe, every tongue, every nation, all the cherubim, are all continuously singing, "Holy, holy, holy." It's declaring that God is separate, that he is other, and that he's maximally great. So, mm-hmm. yes, the cross is maximally selfish, if you wanted to use that term. But I, I would say self-glorifying because that's what God wants to do. Yep. It's the most glorifying deed Christ did when he was on this earth is to die for sinners. I mean, if you read the book of Galatians and Ephesians especially, those are two very strong books in the New Testament that appeal to not only were we totally dead in our trespasses, but we were made alive to Christ by his sacrifice mm-hmm. and resurrection. Yeah, and that goes back to, like, even at the moment of baptism, that, that Jesus' ministry was catapulted, that basically the things that he did was self-glorifying because what does God say, God the Father, if we believe in the Trinity, for my son who I am well pleased. That's right. maximally giving glory to God. Yeah. And so then we see that time and time and time and time again. Every time that Christ does something that is miraculous, that gives glory to God, it's giving glory to himself, but also to God the Father to say, this is the, re- this is the reality of it. Yeah. This is the reality of why I came. This is the reality of my Father. This is the reality of who you are, who I am, and what I've come to do. Yeah. This has been a, I want to say eye-opener, but that implies that I have more answers than questions, which is uh, untrue. It's a mind so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh This has been a, a really good thought experiment, I think, because I was kind of thinking as you're wrapping this up, because it's it's time to wrap this episode up. Yeah. Like what 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 did we accomplish in this episode? Like what what questions did we answer? I'm, I'm trying to like think of a way to tie a bow on this uh, two episode thing. It's been a while since we've done something that had to be chunked up into two episodes, so it's it's been a very big goal. So what was that goal? And I think that goal was to analyze scripture, analyze God, analyze a Christian worldview through the lens of philosophy, because that's something that I think the capital C church isn't interested in doing right now for some strange reason, because they think that we need to be alienated from the world. And we, while we are called to be in the world, but not of it, we do not need to alienate ourselves from the way that the world thinks, because that goes back to the scripture we touched on in Paul. He wasn't afraid of it. And since it made it into scripture, I think it's safe to say that we should do it. And I think that we've done a pretty decent job of that, even though we're definitely going to have to have you on again, John, yeah, because no. this is, it's been good conversation that I'm sure we could go for another two hours if we didn't have no. social yeah. obligations. No, I had a blast. But this has been a cross training for two, two hours and nine combined minutes of 
my brain melting. So, as always, you can get all our uh, links to our socials, our email address, all that good stuff in the show notes. And until next time, Tanner, give us those magic words. Peace out.